And so today we're going to talk about Christian liberty and how Romans 14 teaches in black and white, really clear that everything is not black and white. Uh, thank you for joining with me today, trying some new things out with our sound. Please let me know if you can hear me as I begin to talk today about Christian liberty. Glad that you're here. What's up, Frederick Bass? Hope everything is well with you as well as Joselito. As you can see, I have up on the screen here right now a picture where we have liberty in the spirit right there in the middle and then two X's on each side. Now, the reason why I got to describe this picture is because if you didn't know, we also have iTunes podcast you can subscribe to and download and listen to these at any time you want. And trust me, it's fun to listen to me at two times speed. I actually listen to myself at that speed, and it's like really fast. And then we also have the app on Google or iTunes app stores, and both the podcast and the app is found under Metro Praise International. So I'll be describing for those who listen by audio. Good to see you guys checking me out today. So in the middle, we have Liberty in the Spirit, and on the right and left of Liberty in the Spirit, we have two X's. On one side of the X is legalism. On the other side of the X is licentiousness. Licentiousness could also mean lawlessness. So we could say that liberty in the spirit is in the center where God wants us to be. And he doesn't want us to be legalistic or he doesn't want us to be licentious or lawless. Now, let's go to the scriptures. And before I get into Romans chapter 14... What I would like to do is show you in Galatians chapter 5 how important it is that we understand freedom in Christ. Because freedom in Christ is an important doctrine. I have right now in our church the 14 fundamental truths as our main doctrines. I got those from the Assemblies of God. Over time, I would like to change them, not in a uh, disagreeing way with them, but a more clear way and concise way for some of them. And one of them that I would like to put there and then to add in is a doctrine on Christian liberty. Uh, all the others would pretty much be the same and sanctification would be worded a little bit differently. But I say that because Christian liberty is a key component of Christian living. living. It's really how we are supposed to live as Christians when everything is not black or white. Now let's look at how important Christian liberty is in Galatians chapter 5 verses 1 and onward. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So what this is saying is that we have been set free as Christians by Christ for the sake of freedom, and that we're not supposed to let ourselves be burdened again. Well, how can we get burdened again as Christians? He continues on, verse 2, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Now, in the Galatian church, there in Galatia, in that region, Judaizers were trying to convince the Christians to become Jews in their culture to be real Christians. So they were saying to Gentiles, you got to get circumcised. you got to keep the dietary law. You've got to be Jewish in your culture to be Christian in your religion. And here Paul is clearly saying, that's not how it works. 
the Jewish uh, law that, that created the Jewish culture was in the Old Covenant for the Jewish people. But now through Christ, Jew and Gentile are united together in the new covenant. Doesn't mean there are not laws. It just means the laws are now in the new covenant stated by Jesus and the apostles. Somebody might say, well, have they changed? No, they've been fulfilled in Christ. And now Christ brings them to their fullness in a new applicable way. And the old way that they were fulfilled is no longer relevant to the Christian. Now, somebody might say, well, what about a Jew? Is it still relevant to them? In only the sense that the Jew wants to honor the culture of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. But it cannot be used even for the Jew, the Mosaic Law, for righteousness sake. So long story short, the Galatian people were being taught they had to add extra laws into the new covenant. Now Paul is rebuking that idea and saying that is not what you have to do. So everybody get this. If adding even the good laws from the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the new covenant is wrong, how much more so would it be to take cultural laws or things not found in any part of the Bible, old or new, and add them into the new covenant? So as one person said, most denominations start off by asking their ministers before they ordain them, do they believe that the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith and conduct? And they start off by asking their ministers to check it off on the application. And then this one pastor said, and then after that, they ask those ministers, do they agree to all the other non-biblical standards in their denomination? Now, it is funny, but it's true that we do that as Christians. We'll start off by saying, do you believe that the Bible is the only rule for faith and conduct? That if the Bible doesn't say it, that it is not a rule for faith and conduct. So where the Bible is silent, we remain silent. Do you agree with that? And most Christians would say yes. That's why we don't have books like the Bhagavad Gita that tell all of these mythological stories of heaven. We don't try to go beyond what the Bible says. But once you agree to that, theologically, you have to agree to it morally. That means where the Bible is silent in moral issues that we have to remain silent. And at best, if we in the church want to make judgments, decisions on that, we do so from other scriptures that give us a basis for making that kind of a judgment. But we do not presume to know the will of God or to add law on top of the scripture that's not found in the Bible. Are you tracking with me? What's going on, Arthur and others that are here? We're talking about Christian liberty. And what I want to do is tell just a little bit of my story that I once was convinced that all of the personal things that God was speaking to me to do in my conscience were for everybody else. That if God spoke it to me, then that meant it was for everybody else. So for example, when I first became a Christian, not only did I give up secular music, but I gave up all forms of music that was not worship. It's funny now that I hear about Jimmy Swagger and other ministries that actually teach that. 
I didn't know that there was actually people that taught that. So I was convicted not only not to listen to ungodly Christian, non-Christian music, but to not listen to Christian rap, not listen to Christian rock. I've also heard that David Wilkerson was against many of those things, but I didn't even hear anybody teach that to me, okay? I simply just felt convicted. Other things, not to do it, other things I felt convicted over were to take out my earrings and never put them in again. Now, as you can see, I don't have any tattoos, so I didn't have to get any of those removed, but I guarantee if I would have had them, I probably would have gotten them removed if I could have. Also around that same time, I cut out watching all non-Christian TV and movies. So now you have me as an 18-year-old man not listening to any Christian rap, no Christian rock, no secular music, not watching any secular non-Christian TV, and not watching any secular movies. One time I was out getting some McDonald's, got a big gulp, you know, the supersize me of pop. I didn't like the way the caffeine made me feel because I had coming off of drugs and I knew how to be sensitive to the high of what my body would feel. I just didn't like what caffeine did. I cut out caffeine. You might say, Pastor, even chocolate has caffeine. I cut out chocolate. Now you might then ask, how long did you keep those kinds of things in your life? I did not start even listening to secular music all the way up until about five years ago. So for almost 15 years, I did not even listen to secular music. Maybe after about uh, six, seven years, I started watching certain kinds of movies and TVs, TV shows, and even still to this day, I don't drink caffeine, though every now and then I'll have chocolate. But I also added some few, a few other things into that. I don't celebrate Christmas. I don't celebrate Christmas and a few other things that can't come into my mind that make me a little bit of a spiritual weirdy. So here you have me going throughout Christianity. With the, oh, one of them was I added fasting to my life three days a week, and I felt that was pretty much the way everybody should live, if not one day a week, fasting. And uh, very rigorous two hours a day of prayer, every single day praying two hours a day. So now here you have me becoming a Christian, loving Jesus with all my heart, but all of a sudden finding myself with all of these extra biblical rules. Does it say anywhere in the Bible that I can't listen to secular music? Does it say anywhere in the Bible I can't watch? non-Christian TV? Does it say anywhere in the Bible that I can't watch non-Christian movies? Does it say anywhere in the Bible that I couldn't celebrate Christmas? Now the thing is, some of you might be watching this and you might be thinking to yourself that you can find scriptures that actually address those things. You might be able to find a scripture that says, I'll set no wicked thing before my eyes. That was the scripture that I used to X out all secular uh, TV and all secular movies. But hold on, doesn't the Bible tell stories of wickedness and evil? So that if I'm using that as my standard, not to put anything evil before my eyes, shouldn't I remove now the Bible stories? You see how quickly that slips into a slippery slope. Other things that you might say about Christmas. Well, I can show you the scriptures, like you might say to me, I can show you the scriptures were in Jeremiah, they were told not to cut down a tree and worship it, and so forth and so on, and not to do the things of the other nations. But isn't that something 
that we would use those scriptures, those like myself, and yet that had nothing to do with something called Christ's Mass. Christ's Mass, yes, comes from a Catholic observance of, of Christ's birth, but really it doesn't have anything to do with Jeremiah's tree and idolatry. Today, Protestants who choose to cut down a tree and to honor God by decorating it, just as they would decorate their house with other kinds of trees and plants and give gifts to each other, though it's not in the Bible, it is not explicitly taught against it. And so as you can see, I could be here all day, earrings. Now somebody might say about tat, you know, earrings are not said that we can't have them. And somebody might say, well, tattoos are told not, to, you know, not to do these things. Well, once again, even if you want to take that literally for all the ways that we get tattoos today, you would have to take literal all the other laws of the old covenant. So why put in that ceremonial law, that kind of purity law into the new covenant if you're not going to take all the others? like mixing two different types of cloth, etc. So we have to understand that there's a new covenant, and when we live in the new covenant, the morals of the old covenant still apply, but the dietary, civil, cleanliness codes, they do not. So be careful even with something like tattoos. And so what does it mean to be free then? Does it now mean that we can do whatever we want? You know, in one place Paul says, you know, all things may be uh, lawful to me, but not all things are beneficial. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, even if God says we can, does that mean we should? Now, some people might argue that we can't. And some of those things that I mentioned, if there's a pastor that wants to have a discussion about them, he can come on and we can discuss. But I only really want to discuss those things with pastors because I've tried to have these discussions with members of the church, and I, I see that they lack a lot of respect, and they can't really formulate as, as well of arguments as generally as those who preach and teach in the church. But that's not even really my concern. I don't really have enjoyment of arguing with Christians over all of these things. What I like to do is teach the simple principle of Romans 14, that Romans 14 in black and white teaches us that not everything is black and white. And so if we want to please God, we should live within the, the boundaries of not being legalistic and not being licentious or lawless, just acting like as if there's no laws of God. If we want to please God, we should stay right on the path of holiness and liberty in the spirit, not going into the ditch of legalism, adding extra biblical laws to the body of Christ and to ourselves, or taking away the biblical laws and living as if they don't exist. And so God may give us spiritual principles, things that we should do. Those things are not, however, laws. Laws in a covenant are for all those in that covenant. So you couldn't be in the Old Testament and just say, I don't feel like doing these laws. You have to do all of those laws. And you can't be in the new covenant and say, I don't feel like doing all these laws. So in Christian liberty, what we're saying is we follow the law of God and nothing else as law. But if anything else is a conviction, something God has given us, we may consider that a law for us. We may consider that a principle for us, but it's not a law for everybody else. And then at the same time, we can't take away the things of the Bible and say that's not a law for us, but we can remove in different seasons things that God is speaking to us by the Spirit that may 
be allowable. And at one time they weren't. So for example, one of the hot topics that I preached on in our church was on alcohol. Because along with all those other things, I didn't drink. Because I felt that the argument for alcohol was best understood as grape juice and non-fermented wine. That this is what the Bible was talking about. That that's what Jesus made at the wedding. Or if it had any alcohol, it wasn't the same kind we have today. So it could never get you drunk. It would be more like just mixing a little bit of alcohol with water. But as I began to study the scriptures, I began to see that that wasn't true. Though the alcohol was diluted with water, it wasn't the same proof we have today. They couldn't make the kind of liquor we could have today. The wine they had could get people drunk. It could. And that's why the same word for wine in the Old Testament and New Testament that's said to enjoy and to make merry the heart and to use in moderation is the same kind of wine that we're warned against becoming drunk off of. And I'll add uh, the link to my sermon here on alcohol in the Bible. But once again, if someone doesn't want to drink, they don't have to drink. There's no law telling them they have to drink. The only law about alcohol is that you don't get drunk. And of course, there's another law that tells us to honor the laws of our land. So unless you're of a legal age to drink, you can't drink to begin with. And then if you do drink, you're not to get drunk. And sometimes people ask me, what is it like to be drunk? Where is that line? If you don't know, have a wine or glass of wine or beer with me, and I'll tell you where it's at. Because spirit-filled people should be able to know where sobriety is. And I believe that even in the descriptions of what the Bible says about these warnings about alcohol, we see what drunkenness looks like. Looks like that you don't know what made you stumble. You wake up with sores all over your body. That's the way I think drunkenness is described in the Bible. Now, some people may not like that about me or our church or the kind of Christianity that I live because I believe in Christian liberty. Now you understand why it's so important that we understand Christian liberty. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 14 and let's go through it verse by verse. So it might be a little bit longer of a lesson today, but I think it's well worth it. And I'll be using myself as an example. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Isn't that something that the Bible actually teaches us there are disputable matters? So the black and white teaching of the Bible is there are things that are not black and white. Isn't that something? So there are disputable matters. Let's listen to the kinds of things that Paul says are disputable matters. Now, if you notice, you might have heard a contradiction in my uh, talk so far. I said that I would discuss these things with other pastors and have a little debate about it. But it now says that I'm not to quarrel over disputable matters. So where's the balance? If I were to discuss these things with a godly pastor who I could affirm was an actual Bible-believing Christian, I would do so with grace and love. And if I realized that the discussion turned into an ungodly quarrel, I would rather drop the matter. Even if that means they disfellowship me and say, by our denominational rules or our church's rules and how we see the Bible, 
we can't let you be in fellowship with us because you enjoy alcohol in moderation or listen to secular music or allow your people to have tattoos or these other things. I would be okay with that. I would not then now progress the issue. I would say, brother, pastor, that's your decision. I'm sorry you're breaking fellowship with me over disputable matters that you think are not disputable, I know, but I'm okay with that. Let's go in grace and peace. At least Christ is being preached among the nations. But as I have grown older in my Christian faith, I think I understand this verse better than I did before. Now, some of you might think, oh, Joe, I've heard this story before. This is exactly how we now move into liberalism and we give into the homosexual movement and all of these other lies of the church. No, my friends, no, my friends. What if I told you that all throughout church history, there's always been disputable matters in conservative Christianity? That the Methodists had their discussions about alcohol and women in the ministry and media. What if I told you all throughout Pentecostalism, they always argued about whether or not you could play cards or have those things even in your house. And some denominations like the Assemblies of God to this day don't allow dancing unless it's in church. That's why still, if you meet a strict Assembly of God credentialed minister, he'll leave after the, uh, after the meal, before the dancing starts at the wedding, because they cannot be around the dancing in the wedding celebration. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is there's always been disputable matters. What we haven't always done is we haven't always handled disputable matters according to the way Paul taught us. So the Bible says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So what does that mean, the person's faith is weak? Let's see. Is my faith weak because now I listen to certain kinds of secular music or watch certain kinds of non-Christian movies? Or is the person, according to Romans 14, weak if they say, I can't do anything except what I see in the Bible, because anything outside of that is sin to me. Let's see who's the real weak person, according to the scripture. One person, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Oh, so now we get a little taste of who is actually weak in Romans 14. It is the one who puts the extra standard on themselves. So let's take the example Paul gives us. There were some Christians that began to feel so compassionate for God's creation in the animal kingdom that they said we ought not to even eat Bambi and these wonderful animals. We not ought to even eat them. We should only eat vegetables. But yet... The Bible doesn't say we have to be vegetarians. The Bible's pretty clear that God allowed sacrifice and for them to eat meat and et cetera and celebration, all these things. And so now the Bible teaches us that the one who puts a, another standard on themselves is actually the weak person. And we who are strong, who can eat meat and not feel grieved that we're eating one of God's special creation, we are not to make them feel bad for their weakness. Let's keep going.
The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Look at that. Must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Wow. Look at the two sides of the coin here. The one who does eat everything, who is strong in their faith, according to Paul, is not supposed to now make fun of and persecute the one who is weak in faith. They are to love them and to respect them and say, I appreciate your Christian stance in this issue. This has become something beneficial to you. Praise God. And yet on the other side of that, the one who is weak in faith is now not supposed to stand up on their soapbox and judge the one who is eating the meat. They are not to say, see much how much more pious I am than you, that I don't even need to eat meat, you wicked meat eater. Now we have the understanding of Romans 14. There are disputable matters, and then there are those who are strong, and there are those who are weak. The ones that are strong are usually the ones who can do the things that the weak people cannot do. These are the gray areas of the scripture. And so the weak and the strong are not supposed to fight each other or even put each other out of the church. They're supposed to dwell together with their weakness and with their strength. So now, can we substitute meat eating for all of these other disputable matters? Yes, the one who watches secular music, a uh, movies, is not to put down the one who can't. And the one who can't is not to judge the one who can. The one who drinks in moderation unto God, and we'll hear about eating and drinking in a moment, the one who eats and drinks unto God is not to put down the one who cannot. The one who cannot is not to make themselves look stronger, stronger and more Christian and more wise than the one who can. That is how it's supposed to work. Let's keep going to verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Do you get that? So if I like to watch certain kinds of non-Christian movies that don't violate my conscience or the clear teachings of scriptures, God says he will make sure I stand and don't fall for any trick of the enemy. So I'm not to be placed under a burden of somebody else's wisdom that makes me in bondage to a non-biblical standard. I will stand by God's strength in this disputable matter. At the same time, the one who cannot watch the secular movie, they are not to become so self-absorbed that they think now they're earning their salvation to the point where they can't even read a Bible story like Samson and Delilah because it reminds them of adultery and they get tempted to have an affair. Hello, somebody. Or of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. 
God will make them stand. We are not to make them feel so weak and brittle that they have to violate their conscience to show how strong they are. In other words, we don't have to force them to live by our convictions no more than they are to force us to live by their convictions. We are to both trust each other's master, which is the same master, Jesus, that he will enable us to stand in our Christian walk with these different convictions. Now, Paul moves on and he says, one considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each one of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So you then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Well, I thought we were supposed to judge according to 1 Corinthians 5. Yes, we're supposed to judge according to 1 Corinthians 5 if our brother or sister has sinned. That's also Matthew chapter 18. But what is Romans 14 teaching us? We don't judge according to disputable matters. And if everything in your life, dear sir, dear ma'am, is a black and white issue, you have missed the black and white teaching of Romans of disputable matters. Let that sink in for a moment. If there is nothing in your life that you give grace for others to do or not do, then you have missed the black and white teaching of disputable matters. Now I know it can be a slippery slope. I know it can be hard for some of us who have been more legalistic on this side of our Christian life. We're afraid that if we allow people to have freedom to do things that we were told not to do by great leaders and pastors, that somehow they're going to turn to licentiousness, that they're going to now turn to some liberal Christian that's going to take away all the things of God. My friends, that concern may be valid, but it should be one we trust God with, that God is able to teach the one who enjoys secular music or movies, where that line is, and we can help them with the black and white teachings of the scripture. If the movie promotes and pushes in front of us uh, immorality, nudity, things that are totally against God's commands, we should help them to see that that is dangerous. Also, if the music is vulgar and distasteful, we should help them and see that those are clear things we should avoid. But if they're watching a movie about good versus evil and learning to see different people's take in life and their stories and biographies, we ought to trust God that if they're praying and staying close to the Lord, they will know if these things become a snare. If it's now up to me to give them the list of movies they can see and the list of music they can listen to, then now we have made another Talmud, another Hadith, another catechism, as it were, that's outside of the Bible. The Roman Catholic have theirs. 
The Muslims have theirs. The Jews have theirs. What does the Christian have according to the scripture? The Christian has something better than the Talmud, don't we? We have something better than the teachings of Rome. We have the spirit, do we not? We have the spirit. The Bible says those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh in Galatians 5.24. And they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So simply we should entrust each other to the things of God. Now, when we go back to this passage in Romans, did you notice he also brought up things like the holy days, the Sabbath. And if you remember, I even debated a Sabbath-keeping person the other day. And I said, man, how can you get around this scripture? The Bible says you're not to judge me on these things. But to him, that was part of the moral code because it was found in the Ten Commandments. If you've been around me for a while, I've taught you that the only things from the Old Testament that are still applicable in the same way in the New Testament are the moral commands of God. And in the Ten Commandments, we have to be careful. There's one thing that's not moral. It is a civil, because it was punishable by the government, religious, because it was taught as a part of their religion, and ceremonial law, because they had to do it a certain way, called the Sabbath. And so nine out of the Ten Commandments are followed exactly the way God taught them in that, in that time. One of the ten is not taught in the same way. We can take a principle from it and say we all ought to live and rest in Christ or have a day of worship, but it's not the same thing as it was taught in the, the Old Testament. The Bible's clear in Hebrews that, that the Sabbath is now a spiritual rest from the works of the law. So to make it more than that is to go beyond Scripture if you try to make it applicable to everybody. In your own private walk with God, you can make that a day of rest to spend time with the Lord. That's awesome, but it's not a law. You can make it a part of a culture and a society to say, now that Christ raised on Sunday early, and this is the day that early church met, we're going to make this our day of rest, and we're going to close down our business or not work on that day. Wonderful. Be free to do so. You do that unto the Lord. But remember, if somebody works on Sunday, if somebody doesn't shut their business down on Sunday, they are not worse than the one who shuts their business down because there's no law that everyone has to do what Chick-fil-A does. I appreciate what they do, but the Sabbath law has been fulfilled in Christ. It was ceremonial, it was religious, and it was civil. That's why when a guy was picking up sticks, he got in a whole lot of trouble on the Sabbath, right? So why are we judging each other over these things? We ought not to do that. Let me read through this a little bit, and then I'll give you some practical things to take away. Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. That's a scripture for the divinity of Jesus, by the way, because who do we do that before? Jesus. And that was Yahweh saying what's going to happen to him in the Old Testament. Verse 12 of Romans 14. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. And so now we get this principle of brotherly love and compassion, especially for those who are weak. Now notice, Paul does not say that we should judge each other based on this, but rather we should love each other. It doesn't mean now we stop doing the very things we had permission to do in the verses before because we are afraid someone, someone out there is going to fall. No, in our actual sphere of influence in church relationships, we make sure we know who is weak and strong among us. And if we are strong and we have some that are weak, we make sure when we are around them, for their weakness sake, we don't express our strength in front of them. So if I'm out with some pastors, I might have a taste for some alcohol with my food. I then ask them, brothers, is it okay if I get a beer with this meal? If they say, Joe, this is a grieving thing to me, I don't want anything to do with it, I'll never bring it up again. Now, does that mean that I'll never drink a beer at any restaurant at any given time because somewhere out there, somebody might get grieved and offended? No, what I am doing is minding my own business and doing things between me and God. If someone around me were to be grieved by such a thing, then that would be their obligation to tell me. Now, we have to then understand if they are grieved, what are they grieved for? Are they grieved that because I'm doing such a thing, maybe watching a movie, and they consider it a sin, and now they see me do it, and it grieves them to see me sinning? Well, if that's their attitude, I do not have to stop seeing the movie with them because they're actually considering me a sinner. They're violating the principle. I'm only supposed to submit my freedom to their weakness if, in fact, they admit that it has nothing to do with sin. It only has to do with their weakness, that maybe them seeing me drink will make them want to drink and get drunk tonight. Me going to the movie will make them want to go watch pornography tonight. See, they can't use their conviction to now usurp it over my freedom because they consider it sin. Do you notice they would be violating the scriptures above? And that's exactly what so many people do over disputable matters. They may even say, it's okay, but I don't want to see it because if I do, I consider you sinful. Well, you see, that's a wrong interpretation. 
I don't consider you sinful if you can't have wine for your communion as the disciples did with Passover and the Jews still do today. I don't consider you sinful because you can't watch movies that tell the story of Braveheart or other things like uh, Saving Private Ryan because it's a non-Christian movie. I don't consider you sinful because you can't listen to certain oldies or certain songs that are out today like Julio Iglesias with your wife. I can be your hero, baby. Like, I don't consider you sinful because of those things. You can't consider me sinful because I do those things. And by the way, some of the things have come to my mind now. Never went to a public beach, only read the King James Bible, never took off my shirt around anybody except other guys. I could be here all day. And by the way, shirtless men is not a sin. Say it again. It's shirtless men is not a sin. I could take my shirt off in front of you, do this entire Bible study with my shirt off. There is no sin with a shirtless man. There's nothing there. Now you might say, well, that might make a woman stumble. Once again, that would be her issue to let me know, etc. And now we live in a world, let's just talk about it, of social media. And so everybody everywhere can see you. I don't believe that's what the Bible's talking about. That way we would be doing nothing. Of, of Christian liberty. Everything literally would have to be reduced down to what the Amish believe until we have no Christian liberty. Let me give you an example of that because I grew up with the Amish, okay? Let me explain this to you. If you were to say to me right now, Joe, because people in social media can be grieved by this, you shouldn't do it at all, I would have to then say, okay, well then what about the person who's grieved by social media to begin with? Because there's other Christians that don't even do social media. So now we've gone from not doing anything on social media that grieves all these X, Y, and Z people, nameless and faceless people I'm not in relationship with, to now not even having social media. Now someone else comes along and says, I can go one step further than that. I think everything that's technological leads towards worldliness. We should remove technology from our lives. And then now you see how quickly we go to the Amish. And I knew Amish people. Some of them worked with my family. And they were great people, very rational, very kind. Uh, nothing really different about them. I know there's some secret cult type stuff that happens in some sects. But Mennonites and Amish, very similar, great people. And nothing that would be unchristian about them. But they have believed that everything has to be black and white and there's no disputable issue. And now you see them uh, you know, walking around only with certain colors of clothes, wearing bonnets, no electricity, driving, uh, no driving, now they only have horses. And then they split, their communities split over whether or not you could even be in a car lawfully or you always have to be just an animal driven uh, vehicles of some kind. And then they'll argue over, are you only able to wear black clothes or can you wear blue? And we would be here all day, right? So, so be careful when you try to use social media can now apply to the marketplace or uh, uh, the, the church of the believer, because Corinthians talks about this too when you're buying meat there. You have to understand that this is the real community of Christians that would know each other and interact with each other. And so to, to make this to be so vast, you would be living literally in a, in a bondage, okay? Now look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. 
So how should we please God as Christians? We should please God as Christians by not arguing over what we eat or what we drink. And that's probably referring to alcohol there. Just like there were probably people that, uh, there were people that were vegetarians. There were people that were abstinent. And, you know, it says that's not what Christianity is about. We know drunkenness is wrong. We know gluttony is wrong. We know idolatry is wrong. But these other things, we are to give each other grace in and to serve Christ this way and have the righteousness, peace, and joy. And then he says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. That is why for me personally, you never really see me doing disputable issues on Facebook because for my peace and for your edification, I try to stay away from it, but I don't always do that. Most of the time I do, but there may be a time when, like say they surprised me at, at, um, at a birthday party and they brought over mimosa, some champagne and some... Uh, uh, orange juice. Some people got offended by that. Well, I'm sorry, okay? Are you the weaker brother in our church or somebody that's going to go become an alcoholic because of that? If you are, then please stop following me on Facebook. Please, I'm asking you because people will tag me in things like that and I don't want you to stumble. But if you're just somebody that's grieved and wants to start a fight over those things, well, just deal with it. Just like I don't get all upset with you uh, summarizing everything that's a disputable matter as a sin all the time. I give you the grace to do that. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to stumble. Now, somebody may say, see, pastor, that's why you're never supposed to do it because there's always going to be somebody out there to do it. If that was what Paul was saying, then why did he give us permission to do it in the beginning and say someone does it, someone does it, uh, someone does, someone doesn't. If it's always supposed to be someone's going to stumble, so don't do it, then his point would have been never do anything that makes people stumble. There's no gray area. You see the circular logic there? It would be arguing from a different point in a circular manner. What he's doing is he's moving right here through his points. He's saying there are some who are going to eat, uh, meat, and there's some who's going to only eat vegetables. There's some who's going to have church on the Sabbath because they're from a Jewish community, and there's some who's going to worship God on any day they want. There's going to be some who are going to drink, and there's going to be some who are not. And then he says, now, don't do, and, and he said, don't judge each other. Remember, don't judge each other on those things. And so the one who's weak is not supposed to put down the one who's strong, and the one who's strong is not supposed to put down the one who's weak. And then he says here at the end, but when you are around each other, when you're with each other, don't make each other stumble. Now, if you were to say, I still don't receive that, well, then let me ask you a question. Are you not eating meat around anyone that's obese today? Now, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of obese people in the church, and eating meat around them can make them stumble. So does that mean you don't go to Fogo de Chao or to a buffet with them and say, listen, brother, you are weak when it comes to food. I'm not going to even eat around you. Watch me fast so that you'll feel convicted over how much you overeat. No. Why? Because you eating doesn't cause them to sin and overeat. Their overeating issue is a separate issue. Just the same thing with alcohol or with movies. Do those things make most Christians sin? No, that has nothing to do with the sin. The sin is their lack of self-control or their desire to do something that's wicked, that the Bible is clear that is wicked. And so we're supposed to make sure that we're not doing things around those kind of people that don't know the difference between wickedness and holiness. So, for example, the kind of 
thing that I would say with movies or with entertainment. Are you doing those things around somebody that has the tendency to worship people or to worship uh, movie stars? Are you, are you with somebody that's like a nerd and has all the Batman comics and all the Batman figures? Well, you see, that kind of person doesn't know yet how to do what you do watching Batman or a superhero movie. You need to help guard them. Or the same thing is with like alcohol or something. Are you around someone who just came out of Team Challenge and literally is almost looking for an excuse to go back to their old life? You see, those are the kind of people we're to be sensitive with. I would say like another example. Let's say you're a married man and your best friend is still single. Do you want to really tell your single friend that you know still may struggle with pornography or sex with themselves? Do you really want to tell them about your love life and how you and your wife please each other? Of course not. So you guard the people around you and you help them to understand what it's like to live for Christ. As I said before, if the, say, if the social media world causes people to sin, then on their own they should cut off people that cause them to sin and not follow them. But it shouldn't be our responsibility to cut out everything that could possibly be considered a sin because then I wouldn't even be on social media. Do you understand? So let's close it out here. Verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. See, that's why I don't make this a big deal. That's why I don't come, you know, like some of these pastors that totally grieve my heart. They're backslidden to me. I don't come with a beer in my hand and go, look, I can drink beer. Or I don't put on the, um, uh, you know, Facebook this song I just listened to by Diplo that I like. And, you know, I appreciate him and Justin Bieber on that collab they did. I don't say, listen, I love Diplo and JB on this. You know, I keep those things between me and God for peace and, and, and less arguments among God's people. But blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. At the same time, for me having come from that very legalistic background, I don't want to be condemned because I now approve of something that the Bible never condemned. You remember when I said that from the very beginning, that we are not to fight about these things, they're personal convictions and issues. Now look at verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they were to eat because their eating is not from faith and whatever that person does, excuse me, and, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And then one last verse, because I think it ties right in chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their own good to build them up. Amen. I see some of you are watching uh, Victor ruffling, ruffling some feathers, he said. Uh, I hope that you see my intention is good. I'm not purposely trying to be controversial. That's why I don't have all of my liberty things with me right now. I don't have a, a beer here and a movie there and secular music playing in the background and a non-King James Bible. We shouldn't throw it in people's faces. I actually am very grieved when I see people throw this in people's faces. Like, they'll have a similar story like mine. They'll say, I understand now I can do these things. But then they almost go full tilt into them to make the ones who don't jealous in a sense, you know. Like I heard the story of one pastor left in the Assembly of God Church over alcohol and different things like this. And he came there on a Sunday and he said, praise God, we can have one of these now and drink it. What an idiot. I mean, what, what, why? 
I mean, the Bible says that's stupidity. Why would you do something like that? Or to say, uh, now we can play video games, which by the way, I didn't play video games for a long time. So we're going to play video games in church now. You know, just look what we can do. We can play Halo now in church. I mean, these things that God allows us to do that can be disputable are not given to us to cause division in the body. They're given to us to enjoy life and to find pleasure in the things that we have here. We're not supposed to take what makes us happy in moderation and then now abuse it among those who consider themselves weak. So many of you might say up until this point, Pastor, I didn't know you did some of those things. I didn't know you listened to secular music. Well, then I'm doing my job well then, aren't I? I'm not really making those issues. You may say, Pastor, I didn't, I didn't even know you didn't drink caffeine because you never made me feel weird when you took me out for coffee. As a matter of fact, you offered to take me to Starbucks. Yeah, because I don't make it a big deal. I don't announce to everybody, everybody in Starbucks, Starbucks, I don't drink caffeine because I'm so holy. I'm like the Mormons. <laughs> no, I just, hey, let's go out to Starbucks, my treat. I'm assuming you, you, know, you drink coffee because most people do and my wife does and everybody does. But hey, I'm going to get the juice and I'm going to get that and I'm going to you know, hang out. Let's see what Alexia says. She says, thanks for talking about this, Pastor Joe. Much needed topic to talk about. Awesome. Yeah, here today I'm going to put some links on our sermon series on hot topics and uh, some, some things on Christian liberty that you guys can go back over and study. Is there anything else that you guys have questions about or concerns, anything you would want to share? I think it's kind of funny when I do these live feeds that really just teach the Bible. Like, what did I do right now on this live feed for the last hour? I just went verse by verse, right? Just taught something out the Bible. Very few people watching live. Thank you for those who do. I say I'm going to talk about John Gray. I'm going to talk about Hillsong. Woo, everything blows up. Isn't that funny? You see how that could become addicting or a problem for people like myself? It's almost like you have to feed off of the controversy to get views these days doing this kind of thing that I'm trying to do more of. And uh, just between you and I, those who listen or may check this out through the podcast or app, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not here to try to ruffle feathers to get views. Today on my heart, there was no controversy that I felt like I had to name a name to keep getting more views, to build that. Because you see some people, they're always doing that. It's the next thing to build a name and to build a controversial thing. I'm really not here to do that. I really want to be a great pastor and leader on social media that uses the, the what I mean by great, I want to be an influential person that uses the great opportunity I have to influence people. And I just felt, you know, that this subject of Christian liberty is so misunderstood and it's caused so many fights that if we could all just pull back, we could actually do what the early church did and have a bunch of vegetarians hanging out with a bunch of meat eaters who only worship on Saturday and others who worship on Sunday with those who choose to abstain and don't abstain. You know what I'm saying? Like we could just have a great church of those kinds of people because if we just keep spreading out and saying, I'm the church, I go to the church where you can watch movies and I go to the church where you can do this and I go, we're missing the whole point, you know, where we really are. I would love to have a church that has a Saturday service and a Sunday service because we've won so many Jewish people from that background to the Lord. I mean, amen, a messianic congregation, let's do it. I would love to have a church where you have, oh, and I homeschool, by the way, where you have people like me who homeschool and those who public school, and we don't fight over each it, you know, you homeschool, you're sending your children to Babylon. I mean, uh, you, you send your kids to public school, you're sending them to Babylon, you know. It's like, come on. And it's a little funny they say that. 
But did not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get raised in Babylon and yet keep their testimony? Can't God keep Christian kids in non-Christian schools with holy testimonies if they so desire? That's a great testimony. So let's watch how we use those examples. Okay, I don't see anybody else uh, here. Sorry for it being a little bit longer, but I hope you enjoyed it. Have a wonderful day and stay free in Christ.